That May 23rd was a beautiful spring day. It was May 23rd, 1981. It was the date of our wedding. Charlene and I were to be married at the First Baptist Church in Plano, Illinois. Uh, I, had, I drove in that day from Addison, where my best man lived, and Charlene stayed at her grandmother's, which was just around the corner from the church, and my mom and dad uh, stayed in Sugar Grove in a little, uh, almost like a one-bedroom apartment that Charlene had had that would be for two weeks our little love nest until we moved to Winona Lake, Indiana. When he got to the wedding, my mom and dad arrived, and this was 1981. You have to remember that as a, uh, you know, 42 years ago almost. The First Baptist Church of Plano didn't have this kind of sound system. There wasn't an iPad where I could hit record and record the, the, the wedding. We didn't have the money for a videographer. Not too many people did back in 1981. But my friend from Moody had a little, cool little tape recorder that would fit in the suit pocket of a suit. And my dad and mom were supposed to bring that with them to the wedding so our wedding could be recorded. And they forgot. So I kicked into gear. Me, my best man, my groomsman, and our soloist, we all jumped into our little Datsun 210 two-door coupe. Now, remind you, I was the shortest of that group of guys. Okay, so we packed in there, and we headed off the 11.2 miles to Sugar Grove. I came down Galena Boulevard and got right to Illinois 47, and I am ready to turn left, and nothing's coming. I turn left, and I am behind a hay wagon. I got things to do, people. I got places to go. So I put that as a four-speed, five-speed. So I, I dropped that car into third grade, I po- third gear. I popped the clutch. We zipped around that hay wagon, and the lights came on, and the siren went off. And I pulled over. And behind me was an Illinois state trooper who I swear to this day was hiding in the hay on the hay wagon. He walks up to the car. Ever noticed when you get pulled over, they just seem to be the biggest guys? You know, I mean, this guy's like, I'm not messing. I wouldn't anyway. So he comes walking up to the car. He looks in. He goes, come back with me. So I went back and I sat in his car. While I'm sitting in his car, I look at my Datsun 210, navy blue, 1976 hatchback or coupe, and my friends are laughing so hard, I can see it literally bouncing. Where are you going so fast, son? Oh, we have to go to Sugar Grove because I had to get the tape recorder because I'm getting married in a little bit in Plano, and, and I just graduated from Moody Bible Institute, and I'm going to be a pastor, and I'm going to seminary, and, 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 and I'm just spilling my guts, and I kid you not, he worked hard not to laugh. I get done with all of that. The car is still bouncing. <laughs> he looks at me, he goes, I tell you, he goes, where's your talk? Oh, it's at the church. If you want, we can go right back there. It's not that far. I believe you. I believe you, son. Uh, Here's what I'm going to do today since it's your wedding day. I'm going to give you a warning ticket, and I'm going to give you a piece of advice. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
So he writes out the warning ticket, you know, gives me the ticket, gives me back my license and everything. And then he turns to me and he says, do me one favor today, son. Yes, sir, whatever it is, don't get drunk on your wedding day. Yes, sir, I can do that. And then like under his breath, he goes, I did, and I've never heard the, heard the end of it. <laughs> I received grace that day. And I did not take advantage of that grace. I walked back to the Datsun 210 two-door coupe that was bouncing up and down with three big guys laughing their heads off. And I got in and showed them the warning ticket, and we cheered. I signaled to pull back onto traffic into the road. I drove slowly back onto the road. I stayed at least five miles under the speed limit as we drove the next three miles into Sugar Grove, got the tape recorder, and then drove quietly and calmly, using my turn signals all the way back to the church in Plano, where Charlene and I were married. I received grace that day. And there was absolutely no way I was going to take advantage of it. Have you ever received grace? Has anyone ever showed you grace in your life? We're in Romans chapter 6 today, and I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. You'll notice in your bulletin that this is part two of a two-part sermon. Last time we were in Romans 6 was the week before Palm Sunday. And uh, that sermon was entitled, well, it's the same as today's sermon, Extreme Spiritual Makeover. And Paul is saying this is how God makes us over when we come into relationship with Him. And in fact, in Romans chapter 6, we ended two weeks ago, three weeks ago, in verse 14. And verse 14 says this, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. As we look at this second half of Paul's development of our spiritual makeover, we need to know that what God wants to do in our lives is to make us people who are transformed by His grace. Now what Paul does in Romans, and we've seen this already, he has a dialogue approach. He'll ask questions, he'll answer the questions, and we see that. Let's pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 6. And Paul writes, What then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death, but now 
that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's point here as he begins is in every way, shape, or form, every person is some way beholden to someone else. But, but he starts out by answering this question. Well, hey, I'm under grace. I just got a warning ticket. I can drive any way I want. I'm under grace. God has given me his grace. I can live any way I want. Can't we just go on and live however we want because we're not under the law that bound us up? We're under grace. Paul says, absolutely not. See, Paul's going to tell us we have two choices in life. You either choose to go God's way or you choose your own way. And I know that's very simplistic, but the reality is following Christ is really kind of a simple prospect. Two choices. And Paul says, don't you know when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? As I said, Paul says, you know, in, in way, one way, shape, or form, we are beholden to someone or something else. As I read that, I thought of a 20th century philosopher and singer by the name of Bob Dylan, who once wrote, you got to serve somebody. And that whole song came out on Slow Train of Coming, 1979. That entire song goes through all these people. And he said, you can serve the Lord or you can serve the devil. you got to serve somebody. You always are serving someone. Said much differently in a book that came out again in the 20th century that is still used today. It's a classic. It was entitled, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. Rebecca Manley Pippert wrote this, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Whatever you seek controls you. If you seek and if you pour your heart, soul, and mind into a hobby, that hobby will contain you, will control you. Now, some people have poured everything into their, it's all about the kids. They poured everything into their kids, and they're controlled by the activities and behaviors of their kids. Some of us are controlled by success. Some of us are controlled by money. And Paul is saying, that's what you obey. And he says, it has to be different for us. And Paul uses the term slave. And his point is you're either a slave or the word, another word you could use is bondservant to sin that leads to death. Or you can be a bondservant or a slave to God understood as obedience which leads to righteousness. And he's reminding his audience, these people sitting in these house churches in Rome, listening to Phoebe read Paul's letter, he's reminding them, you used to be slaves to sin. And now you've become slaves to righteousness. The first aspect of this extreme spiritual makeover is when we put our faith in Christ, 
we find that we are not bound by our old ways. As we've stressed, and I'll stress it again when we get to chapter 8, we have the power to change. Now, for many of us, I mean, that slave language is, is difficult. Uh, it's difficult to hear. We, we're not comfortable with that. It bothers us a bit, and I get that. Uh, sometimes when you're reading your New Testament, Paul will talk about himself, and he'll talk about himself being a bond servant to Christ. That term that is reflected in the word slavery is a term that comes from Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus chapter 21, uh, Moses is writing about people who get into debt, and to pay off the debt, they go and place themselves into the home of the person that they owe the money and become their servant. And, and they serve them for a certain period of time till the debt is worked off. Now, at the end of that time, they can be set free. But sometimes they so enjoyed working for that person, so enjoyed being under their, their lordship, under their leadership, that they decide they don't want to be set free. And as a result, there is a ceremony that takes place. And they go to the doorpost of the house, of the main entrance, and they would kneel down and their earlobe would be put right up next to the door and then they would pierce the ear with an awl and pierce it to the doorpost. And by doing that, I know it's kind of gross, by doing that, come on, some of you women had your ears pierced, but maybe they didn't use ice, okay. But by doing that, they're symbolically saying... I am binding myself to this house. That's what Paul's talking about. And the point that he wants us to remember is that an extreme spiritual makeover gives us a new reality. All of a sudden, that's not forced slavery, that's chosen servitude. And, Paul sa- and so Paul says, Thanks be to God, you used to be slaves to sin. You used to have yourself bound to sin, but you've come to obey your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin, and you've become bondservants to righteousness. Sin, when we come into faith with Christ, is no longer our master. We'll see next week, it doesn't mean we don't struggle with it, doesn't mean we don't wrestle with it, but it's not our master. And, and in verse 19, Paul says, okay, here's the deal, folks. I'm using examples from everyday life because of your human limitations. I'm trying to use things that you'll understand so that you get the change that God wants to bring about in our heart. And so he says this, he says in verse 19, which is kind of the, the center of this first point, he says, look, Here's what you used to do. You used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Again, you can't do both. In God's eyes, you can't kind of keep offering yourself to wickedness and then maybe on Sunday be good. No, it's a day-in, day-out existence His call is offer yourself 
as a bondservant to righteousness, and it will lead to holiness. Don't hear perfection in that word holiness. It's not what it means. It means you'll be set apart, set apart for God. And Paul tells us there's, there's two options. He says, first, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Uh, you didn't, righteousness didn't come into play. Oh, I get it. I, you hear it all the time out there, everywhere, do the right thing. But the fact that somebody has to be reminded to do the right thing means that maybe they're not always thinking about doing the right thing. What benefit did you reap from that time? Because those are things that you're now ashamed of. See, when I, you know, I grew up in a pastor's home. You know, I remember going to church camp one year, and they brought this guy in that had, oh boy, did he have a story. You know, and man, he got into this and got into that and got in trouble here and got caught by the law and spent some time in jail. And for the longest time, oh, by the way, he came back the next year and had the same story. So all of a sudden I became kind of a doubter. But for the longest time, I thought, I don't have a story. I don't have a faith story. Nobody wants to hear my story. I grew up in a pastor's home. Didn't really get in trouble much was kind of rebellious, but I knew how to hide it so that I didn't get caught. When I did get caught, I knew how to deny it, but you know. And I had a friend look at me and say, but Scott, I have so many regrets in my life that I know God has forgiven me from. I know that, but I live every day with those regrets. That's what Paul's saying. He said, when you were not under control of righteousness, what benefit did you reap from the things that you did that now you look back and you're so ashamed of? You're ashamed of what you did. And he says, but now, and by the way, he said, those things result in death. Sin always leads to death. Don't think of that as being dead and buried. Don't don't limit yourself to thinking physical death. It's not just physical death. Sin leads to death. Death of relationships. Death of civility. Death of morality. Death rears its ugly head in bitterness and in pride, and in violence, and in power grabs, and in abusive behavior, and in materialism, and lust, and envy. The ills that we struggle with daily, the things that we listen to or see on the news and go, why? That's all the stench of death. So don't just think, oh, death, that's mean I'll be separated from God. No, death, sin destroys. It destroys everything. It destroys relationships. It destroys all that we can think about. And remember this, and and Paul says, but now you've been set free from sin. Life with Christ is to be set free from sin. And don't just think that life with Christ is, oh good, now I get to go to heaven. Let me remind you, you read carefully in your New Testament. Anytime someone makes a faith decision for Christ, the the next thing after that is, okay, you get to go to heaven now. That's what we say. 
But the Bible says when you come into Christ, it's now a life of discipleship. It's a life of following. It's a life of growing. Yes, heaven is in the mix somewhere down there, but it's about the now. So many people prayed a prayer and then decided, I did it. I bought my ticket. I got my fire insurance. I know I'm not going to hell. Now I can live how I want. That's Romans 6, 1, 6, 1 and 6.15. By no means. The grace that God's given you doesn't give you the freedom just to go do what you want now because you got your fire insurance. No, His grace says, I am going to free you to live a new way, to live a better way, to live a healthy way. Life with Christ is peace now, in the present, in the depth of your soul. Life with Christ is that freedom from guilt now because your sins are forgiven, as we read in 1 John today. Life with Christ is God's best now. It's contentment now. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life today. It's strength. It's an awareness of God's grace and your and my understanding that we don't deserve it. I did not deserve a warning ticket. I had passed a, on a double yellow line and I was speeding. I deserved a ticket. I broke the law and I was given grace. And that grace changed how I drove, well, that day, changed how I drove after that. Grace, God in your life is strength. It's an awareness of God's grace. It's a loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It's loving your neighbors, yourself. It means that, that you, you are in this world and you are making a difference where God has planted you. And sometimes that difference is in the slightest, smallest, kindest ways. And sometimes that difference is big ways. It's what God places in front of you in the moment. And Paul then concludes with that very familiar verse. Some of you have memorized it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin earns us death. Sin earns us separation from God. Sin earns us all the ills of society we see around us. But the gift, the gracious gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life that's not just future, that's not just out there someday when I die. Eternal life that should make a difference now. It's hope. It's reality. It's today. And by the way, this is not just a verse to use to tell somebody about Jesus. Paul wasn't writing to non-believers here. He was writing to people who had already put their faith in Christ, to people who already believed, to people who were already struggling and suffering for their belief. This verse is a verse for you and me. It's for you and me to remind us that I need to live in the light of eternity, that I need to understand that sometime in the future I'm going to live in a indefinite, undefinable time with Jesus. And if I am going to live that way someday, then I need to know that what I do today matters. 
And so I live in light of eternity. I live in light of one day standing face to face with Jesus and giving account of my life. I live in light of that. So it's not just for those people who don't know Jesus. It's for me who knows Jesus. When I sin, and we all still struggle with sin, I understand the aspect of death. I understand the broken relationships. I understand the hurt that it brings about. I understand the grief that it causes. I understand how I have to go back and mend the fences. The Apostle Paul then reminds his readers of a second fact in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and it's simply this. An extreme spiritual makeover doesn't just give us a new reality. It gives us a new freedom. There is freedom And he uses marriage as an illustration. Listen as I read these verses. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul states the ideal of marriage. The ideal of marriage, which was as true in 60 AD as it is in 2023, is simply this. When a man and a woman get married, they are ideally bound till death do us part. That's what we say in the wedding language, right? And and we realize, we realize living in a fallen sinful world, it doesn't always work out that way. We're understanding of that. So Paul says, just don't get lost in the metaphor. Look at the illustration. The answer is, hey, now that I'm married, can I do whatever I want? And Paul says, no, you know that. You know that when you're married, you can't do what you want. You know that that the, the reality is that that relationship is not a hindrance. There's actually a freedom in that. You know that. But Paul says, here's the ideal. You're committed to one another. There's no such thing as an open marriage in God's God's economy. It's one man married to one woman for their life. Each person in that relationship is bound to one another. But Paul says in some cases, a spouse dies. In this case, he uses the husband. And he says, then the woman is free to find another husband. Doesn't mean she has to, but she's free to. But in 60 AD, because she had no other visible means of support, it was kind of important. So what's your point, Paul? Well, Paul is talking to both a Jewish audience and a non-Jewish audience. And he's saying that his Jewish audience and his non-Jewish audience, who many of them became proselytes, in other words, they were adopted into the Jewish faith, they decided to believe it even before they knew about Christ. And he says, in that sense, you were married to the law. The law was your master. The law was what you followed. You obeyed the law. You were wed to the law. But then Christ comes. 
And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And he fulfills the complete law. And then he dies. He's the lamb that was sacrificed for your sins and mine. The, the revelation says the lamb that was slain. And, and, and he dies on the cross for us. And, and so we then come into relationship with him. And it's as if we then die to the law. We die to those old rules because Christ fulfilled them. In a sense, it's as if, if we want to stay in the metaphor, it's as if those who come to Christ are wed to him now, and they're bound to him. And he then becomes our first and most important relationship. We're no longer bound by the rules. Now, that doesn't mean that, and, and we understand that the rules, and, and thinking about it, let's just kind of simplify it, say the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments don't give me salvation. Faith in Christ gives me salvation. But now that I know Christ, I can see how the Ten Commandments provide boundaries for that relationship. Every relationship has boundaries. Here's the human reality of human natures. And Paul says it. He goes, so then, he says in verse 4, you've died to the law, that, that, the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. He said, when we were in the realm of the flesh, verse 5, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Human nature is, when someone tells me don't, I want to know why. And when someone tells me don't, I want to know how bad could it be. I mean, let's talk very simple, right? We did this when I was in high school, psychology class. The wall right behind, and I went to a high school with no walls and no doors, no, the classrooms were divided by partitions. It was a thing that they did in the 70s. It didn't work. They tore the school down. But back then, we could sit in our psychology class, and we could look behind us, and we could watch people walk down the hallway. So we did that old psychology experiment, right? We put wet paint, do not touch, and put it right there. And the, the night before, our psychology teacher had come in and, and really cleaned that up, and, and it glistened. It was amazing to watch. And he would be teaching. He could see someone coming. Okay, guys, okay. And we would turn, they'd come by, and they'd look at that sign. And every now and then one of them would go, that's human nature. Don't touch. What if I do? Don't do that. What if I do? I'm going to tell you something, and I want you to hold it in confidence. Okay. Hey, guess what so-and-so told me? And I, now, don't tell anybody else. You know, that's just human nature. And Paul says, that's what happens. In human nature, our sinful nature, you get the rules and it arouses and say, well, what if I do that? Why not? Why not try it? And Paul says, that's who we were. But he says there was a change. He said, look at this. Our fruit was death. It was that brokenness, that broken life. But... Now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We now have freedom to do what pleases God. We now have freedom from the results of broken, sinful choices. Within God's loving boundaries, there is great freedom. 
And we need to celebrate and rejoice in the freedom we have. But it's not a freedom to do what we want. It's a freedom to do what pleases God. God frees us up to serve Him. Come this next May 23rd, Charlene and I will have been married for 42 years. It does not even feel as long as it sounds. I know I hear people all the time. I've talked to people. You've talked to people talking about, you know, marriage. The, the old term used to be the ball and chain. Or we talk about, you know, it's bondage. Uh, uh, you know, I, you know I, I can't make my own decisions. And on and on and on. And I get it. I have many single friends, Charlene, and I have many single friends, and we know they live their lives. They make unilateral decisions. They want to go out to eat, they go out to eat. They want to go see a movie, they go see a movie. They want to stay in, they stay in. They, they, there is a sense of freedom in that. But I can tell you, there is great freedom in being married. You see, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there's at least one person in this world who is for me. And my wife knows beyond the shadow of a doubt there is one person in this world that is for her. I know because I have experienced it multiple times when I mess up. I am forgiven. I know that. I know. I know I am nutty. I know I have idiosyncrasies. I know that I sing classic rock songs and mess up the words all the time. I know that. And I know that in the middle of my nutty idiosyncrasies, I am loved unconditionally by at least one person in this world. There's great freedom in that. Not enough freedom to make me change and not be nutty anymore, but there's great freedom to be who, who I am. There is freedom in that. There is freedom in the security of a loving relationship. See, when we talk about being bondservants of Christ, it's not limiting. It's just the opposite. It's liberating. It's free. You know, I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said, and if he didn't say it, he gets attributed to it right now, that a person who tells lies has to have a good memory because they have to always remember the last lie they told. But in Christ, I'm told to be honest. And, and, and there is freedom in honesty. I believe that the bottom line for Paul in this and for all of us is simply this. Grace is not just about being free to sin. No, it's about being free to live in a way that reflects what God has done in us. God's grace in your life and mine should be a transforming reality. Probably many of you in high school had to read Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's classic work. Victor Hugo was not, by any stretch of the imagination, a Christian. In fact, when he was asked about his faith many, many years ago, he said, I'm a free thinker. The, the, the key character in Les Miserables is a man by the name of Jean Valjean. Uh, he was sentenced to 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread so that he could feed his starving family. And at one point 
we, we find him in the story and kind of the classic scene of the story. He's released from prison and he comes into a small town and there's a bishop there. And the bishop takes him in. He gives him lodging. The bishop treats him like no other, but anybody else treated him with disdain and disrespect. The, the bishop treats him with dignity and, and calls him brother and gives him a fine meal. And it's not lost on Jean Valjean that the silverware that he's using to eat with and the cups that he's drinking with are solid silver. They are worth so much. And in the middle of the night, he goes and he takes all the silverware and all the cups and he leaves. And he is discovered later on the next morning. And the, the, the police bring him back to the bishop. And they ask the bishop to identify the silver and all as his. And the bishop looks at him, and, and it's not a direct quote, but it's kind of like, well, Jean Valjean, I told you to take the candlesticks as well. You forgot the candlesticks. They're worth more than that. And he grabs the candlesticks and he stuffs them into his bag and he says, I gave them these things. And, and he shows him more grace than had ever been shown to him. What is amazing about the rest of the story, and if you're having to read it for English kids, I'm sorry for the spoiler alert. What is amazing about the rest of the story is Jean Valjean is a changed man after that. And he goes into another town. He has a business. He treats his employees with kindness and with dignity and respect. And he becomes kind of the most loved man. In fact, he eventually becomes the mayor. And, and, and he's transformed by a grace that had no limits. The point I believe Paul is making in chapter 6 and into chapter 7 is that God has given us grace that has no limits through Jesus Christ. And if you've received that grace and you've put your faith in the work of Jesus Christ that we celebrated through Holy Week, then you've been forgiven and you're freed from the bondage of sin. And now may God continue to transform you and me with a grace that has no limits. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace in each of our lives. Grace that truly has no limits. Grace that has pardoned, as the song sin, sing, says, our sins within. It's God's grace. It's marvelous grace. May we be people who live in light of your grace, allowing you to transform our lives day in and day out, giving you the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.